years ago, a bright Emirati student came by here on a self-guided field trip for her university studies. She was taking a class on religion and society. And she met with Bethany, our then children's ministry director, I think the year was 2014, and had conversations with her and others. And then this student prepared a thoughtful written summary of her observations and reflections from her time here. Things that stood out to her, coming from a very different background, included crosses, architecture, modesty in dress, and how people related to one another. She noted some differences between church and mosque. Everyone seemed to be friends with everyone. This church is more than just a community or a congregation of people. It is more like a family, she said. But while there were differences between here and the mosque, her conclusion was that the core was really the same. Being in the church and taking in all its features made me think of my religion and how similar we are in expressing our love for God and our devotion to Him. It was around Christmas time, and uh, the carols choir was practicing, as she put it, with complete and utter conviction. It made me think of how amazing the power of religion is and how it strikes a different chord within each of us. So at the end of the day, all that distinguished us was the externals of religion, rite and ritual. The core of the matter was the same regardless of religion. Pluralism is the idea that there are many different paths to ultimate reality, all of them equally valid. It is the operating assumption not only for our young visitor from 2014, but probably for the person you sit beside at work. Probably as well for your neighbor, maybe your best friend, maybe you are a religious pluralist. Anything else we're told would be rigid, narrow, unnecessarily exclusive. David Pallison tells of a conversation he had with a woman who was approaching death. She said, how could anyone say or believe that no one comes to the Father but by me? I think that God is different from all that picky theology and small-minded people believing I think that God is an all-tolerant cosmic energy in which we all participate. There are many ways to God, and God is only as you understand Him. As long as you have faith in something, that's what matters. So is that your view? As long as you have faith in something, then that's what matters? The particulars can be worked out later graded on a curve, a case-by-case -case basis. Friends, consider this. Does it matter how we worship? Whom we worship? Let's return this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12. Look at verse 1. Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, if you're just coming in new, this is in the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 1. 
These are the statutes and rules that you, sh you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. Now, many people believe that as long as you are sincere, as long as you're worshiping from the heart, that's what really matters. What matters is the subject more than the object of worship. But in the Bible, worship is never left up to people's creativity or subjectivity. We see here in verse 1, God gave people specific statutes and rules to follow. Now, the setting was that Moses had been preaching to God's chosen people as they were gathered, poised to enter into the promised land, the land of Canaan. In previous decades, God had rescued them, covenanted with them, sustained them in the wilderness. We've seen the, the story recounted by Moses. So there they are, on the verge of entry, and all for what? What was God's goal in all of this? Well, it was that they might be a worshiping community for His glory. God cares how He will be worshipped. He cares about the place. He cares about the focus. He cares about the people. Now, this morning we're going to zoom out for a larger chunk of Deuteronomy to consider, if you're taking notes, chapter 12, the place of worship, chapter 13, the focus of worship, and chapter 14, the people who worship. The place, the focus, the people. Consider first the place of worship. Just picture the scene there. The people were about to enter a land polluted with idolatry and pagan worship. Now, when they crossed the River Jordan, would they celebrate the religious diversity that they found there as adding an appreciation to human cultures? Would they perhaps hold interfaith services of worship, seeking common ground for religious dialogue? Look at verse 2. Chapter 12, verse 2. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So Canaanite worship wasn't one of many valid expressions of religion to be respected and celebrated no, it was religiously false, morally corrupt, and utterly dehumanizing. As we've seen, these religious practices involved ritual prostitution, physical brutality, and murder. Anything to guarantee a good crop at harvest. Just look at chapter 12, verse 31. Look at the end of the chapter. 12, verse 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Now, if the high places were permitted to remain, 
than they would ever be a temptation to God's people. So what does God say? Tear down, chop down, destroy all the places that they use to serve their gods. You shall not worship your God in that way. Now, none of this means that we should take that approach with the Hindu temple next door. I mean, we are not members of the Old Covenant. Are we clear on that point? We are not the people of Israel. Let's remember, ancient Israel occupied an unrepeatable role, unrepeatable role in world history. For a period of time, God's people were an actual national entity with an army, with borders, with a public health authority, with civil regulations. And they were to cleanse the land of ritual contamination, not because they were inherently any better, but because God had chosen them. Now, modern Israel today has no such function. The old covenant people of God correspond not to any nation today, not to America, not to Israel, not to Canada, but rather to the church of Jesus Christ. We are the true circumcision, as Paul would say, or the Israel of God. But there's a big difference between us and Israel. So there's continuity and there's discontinuity with them. Christians today, for example, are not to carry out physical warfare because the people of God are no longer identified with a particular nation state, which is why Jesus told Peter, put away your sword. Today's not the day of judgment anyway. Today's the day of salvation. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual opposition. And so what do we do? We pray. We serve others. We love our enemies. We bear clear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. We wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Local churches do have disciplinary authority, but only among their own members. So the Apostle Paul once asked, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Yes, it is those inside the church whom we, the members of this congregation, are to judge in cases of serious, unrepentant sin, in cases of heretical false teaching or divisiveness. Congregations have the authority to exercise discipline or excommunication. Titus 3 verse 10, warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a person is warped and sinful, self-condemned. Now, in the modern world, which has made such a god of tolerance, this is simply intolerable. We're told now that we must accept other views as legitimate. No, we must celebrate that they're all equally valid. And basically, they teach the same thing. But according to Deuteronomy, wrong belief is as dangerous as no belief at all. So. God told Israel, negatively, tear down their shrines. But positively, what did he say? Look at verse 5. 
12, verse 5. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice, you and your households in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Now, it wasn't up to them to decide where this would happen. I mean, it wasn't up for democratic vote. The day was coming when God would choose a place, verse 5, to put his name and make his habitation there. Now, up until then, God had been traveling. He had been on a journey with the people in a portable tent, and God's glory would descend as a bright cloud on the tent when they stopped and then the glory cloud would lift up as they began to move on. God was dwelling in their midst as a king. But soon they were going to put down roots. The tabernacle would be situated at Shiloh, it would be situated at Bethel, and then later at Jerusalem. Under David, whose son Solomon would replace it with a permanent temple structure. It was there that God would put his name. Look at verse 11. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. God's name was the exercise of his sovereign rule. In other words, his name is an acknowledgement of total authority. Just as God chose the people, just as he would choose the king, just as he would choose the priest, so he would choose the place where his name would dwell. His authority would be supremely manifested. And it was at that place that the high feast days would be celebrated throughout the year. So on three occasions or so per year, everybody would go to that place. And they would rejoice together. It was the place that God had designated as an expression of uh, His rule and of their allegiance to Him. Now, up until this point, religious practice had necessarily been more diverse. Because remember, they were on the move. They were in the wilderness. They were portable. But the day was coming when worship would become centralized. Look at verse 8. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right, in his own eyes, for you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in it safely, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present and all your fin finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings." 
and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. So these were the sacrificial feasts which were central to uh, Israelite public worship. But the people were eventually going to be spread throughout the whole land, and most of them would be too far away to come regularly to that place. So in addition to these three annual formal feasts, God also provided instruction for family feasts in the various towns and villages scattered throughout Canaan. Look at verse 15. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns, as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and as of the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. Or look up to verse 20. Verse 20. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat, because you crave meat. You may eat meat whenever you desire. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock, which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your towns whenever you desire, just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten. So you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that all may go well with you and with your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. You see, in pagan religion, spilled blood was how they fed the spirits. Spilled blood was for magic, it was for sorcery. But Israel was forbidden from consuming the blood because it was used for making atonement by sacrifice. Shed blood symbolized something. What did it symbolize? The violent sacrificial death of one in the place of another. A substitute. Even when they ate meat in the scattered towns, even in settings that were not officially religious, still, they couldn't eat the blood. They had to recognize that the blood is the life. God alone is the author of life. And so each and every sacrifice was a reminder to the people that fellowship with the living God requires someone's death. It requires shed blood. Not so much for what we've done as for who we are. You see, you and I were made by God and for God. Each of us was made in His image to live out consistently with His character so that He might be honored and praised. But we've all turned away from Him. We have chosen to go our own way. And so we have distorted the public image of God and misrepresented him in a way that has dishonored him we've fallen short of the glory of God and so we can all say with the psalmist against you you only have I sinned and these sacrifices would be a regular reminder that sin is deadly serious and that the wages of sin is death 
But friends, I hope that you also see God's grace here in these verses. In spite of all their sin, do you see that God still desired to worship with them? He still desired their fellowship, even when they fell short. After all, who had rescued Israel out of slavery in the first place? Who had sustained them in the wilderness to get them to this point? Provided a land, even detailed regulations for worship pleasing to God. These laws that we're considering in Deuteronomy were not the result of an overactive imagination by Moses. It was all initiated by God. So he's initiating with God's people, delivering them, prescribing true worship at the place where God would choose to make his name dwell. Now, fast forward many centuries, and Jesus was talking with that woman at the well. Remember who we considered from John chapter 4? Now, that conversation between Jesus and the, the woman at the well broke all of the social conventions that you can imagine. Not only was she a woman, but she was Samaritan. She was a religious half-breed despised by the Jews of the day. Now, Samaritans had built a rival temple to Jerusalem. It was at Mount Gerizim, not in Jerusalem. They believed that God was to be worshipped there, on Mount Gerizim. And when the woman raised this point with this Jewish rabbi Jesus, he replied to her, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, the place where people would go to be forgiven of their sin and commune with the living God would not be Jerusalem, nor would it be Samaria, the place where you would now go to be forgiven of your sins was Jesus himself, the one who was crucified and raised for our justification. It's the same thing he said in John chapter 2. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So the point of contact between heaven and earth was the physical location of Jesus himself. He became the place where God had put his name, his assertion of authority, of unlimited power. So there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 Salvation is found in no one else. And for all of her confusion, the Samaritan woman was beginning to grasp the truth when she said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you. Am he? Notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, well, all religions are actually true and valid. So, just go offer your sacrifice at the Samaritan temple. That will suffice, as long as you do it sincerely. No, John 4.22, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. In other words, some worship was right and true 
and other worship was wrong and false, according to Jesus. When he said that the Samaritans worship what they do not know, he meant they were outside the stream of God's self-revelation. They didn't know him because he couldn't be known except through his written word, the Hebrew scriptures, which we're considering today. But salvation, Jesus said, salvation is from the Jews, not only in the sense of divine revelation, but divine redemption. It would come from the Jews. Jesus Christ was a product. He was the seed of Abraham. So no longer tied to any one culture or any one nationality as it was in the past, salvation would now go worldwide, global, as the Holy Spirit was poured out. Jesus said, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father speaks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is the place. Jesus is the meeting point where God's name rests, his claim to supreme sovereignty. God cares how he is worshipped. First, the place. Second, the focus of worship. Consider the focus. It must be only the true and living God and not any false substitute God. Look at chapter 12, verse 29. 12, verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? That I may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Because these words were utterly unique. These words had absolute and complete authority. Speaking of the Bible here. So, no adding, no subtracting to it, and still, the pressure on these people was going to be immense to worship false gods. Because remember, they're going into a new situation, their livelihood, their very survival, would depend on having good harvests. And the Canaanite god Baal promised fruitful harvest below. He was the chief fertility god. Now in the ancient world, religion worked like this. You covered your bases. You took out insurance, as it were, religiously speaking. If you were traveling, if you were going to war, if you wanted to get married or have children, you served particular gods based on your particular needs. In Athens, they even had an altar to an unknown God. Just a, a shot in the dark, just in case. So Moses knew the pressure would be there, and he anticipated three kinds of people who might seduce, entice God's people to idolatry. 
Number one was the wonder worker. The wonder worker. Look at chapter 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. How do you know if a prophet is true or false? Well, it's interesting. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, it says if he predicts something that doesn't come to pass, then you know he's false. I mean, that's clear enough. But this says something different. Our passage involves one who tells you something that does actually come to pass. And not only that, it's accompanied by a sign or some sort of wonder. So not tricks, not smoke and mirrors, real miracles, but that lead you away from the Lord. Friends, it's clear that just because someone makes some baffling prediction that comes true, or just because someone performs some perplexing sign doesn't mean they're true. How do you know if they're true? Well, based on their message. Verse 2, let us go after other gods and let us serve them. But Moses replies, no, don't listen, don't tolerate them. In fact, the penalty would be death because he's taught rebellion against the Lord your God. These were people who were to love the Lord. Their, their allegiance, their affection had been captured by him. After all, he had delivered them. Their loyalty was total and complete. And so they were, they were to purge the evil from their midst by death penalty. So should we stone false teachers today in our churches? No, again, this takes a different form under the new covenant. We are not under the old covenant. So if I, or John, or Ben, or Richard, or any other preacher here, should begin preaching a different gospel, what should you do? Well, you should remove the preacher. You should excommunicate one who is denying the gospel. Now, the elders would lead the way in that, but ultimately... Friends, it's your responsibility. It's the assembly that must react against false teaching. Now, what that means about you is if you are a member of this church, then you need to know the genuine article, right? Before you can identify the counterfeit. You need to know how God has revealed himself in Scripture in order to discern, is this teacher saying something that's true or false? That's why I think it's a good idea during a sermon like this to have a Bible open and on your lap so that you can be comparing what I'm saying 
with what this says, because the authority does not reside with me. The authority resides with God's Word. Because the God of Mormonism has the same name as our God, but it's not the same. The God of the Jehovah's Witnesses has the same name as our God, but He's not the same. Friend, you need to have growing discernment. So what are you doing about that? Are you regularly reading God's Word at home? Are you attending seriously to preaching? Are you reading good books that will build you up in theology and church history so that you can detect the counterfeit when it comes? I mean, have you ever wondered why a sovereign God even allows false teachers? Well, look at verse 3. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. I take it that those who love God will discern the truth and will not finally be deceived. They will see through the deception, which is why Jesus could predict false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But it's not possible because Christ will hold us fast. So even with false wonder workers, God has his good purposes. Now, even if a false prophet is a close family member, the penalty is the same. Look at verse 8. Chapter 13, verse 8. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. Talking about a family member here. But you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear, and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. Well, what if an entire city went rogue? A whole village, let's say, abandoned God. Well, the penalty is equally severe, maybe even more so. Look at verse, uh, verse 15. Verse 15, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it, and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I, I wonder what you think of the severity of this passage. And many people consider it to be excessively harsh, even horrible. But consider for a moment, consider the nature of the crime. The biblical picture is that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, is, is the creator God. He is above the world, transcendent, and He created the world, and you and I owe our very existence to Him. 
We were created by Him and for Him. And all of us have revolted against Him. But in His mercy, He reached into this world and chose one people for His own glory, delivered them, and they had gone rogue. They revolted against Him. Their crime was akin to treason or espionage in a time of war. And just as Israel was to purify the land of the rebellious Canaanites, so here of the apostate Israelites. You see, there is no difference. There's no favoritism with God. Visiting judgment on this rebellious city would turn away the wrath of God. That's verse 17. Here is a God who deserves exclusive loyalty and with no rival at all. Not even close. You shall have no other gods before me. Friends, God cares about how he's worshipped. So I wonder, is there anything that's competing with God in your heart today? Are there any alternatives? What other gods do you have before him? The place of worship, the focus of worship, and finally, consider the people who worship. This is chapter 14. The people who worship. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Canaanite worship involves self-mutilation. It involved cutting of the skin, making bald spots on the, on the hair for the dead, kind of a way to grieve the passing of loved ones. But Israel was not to do that. Because you are the sons of the Lord your God. And not only that, it says you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That means you are a people who specially enjoy God's presence. You are set apart from all the others, showing the character of God to the world. That's why they should live differently from the surrounding peoples, different priorities, different cultures, even different menus. Look at what they ate. Verse 3. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, and the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof, are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not touch. And their carcasses you shall not touch. Some were permissible for eating, and others were not. If a sea creature had fins and scales, you could eat them. If there was some deviation from that, like the eel, you could not eat the eel. It was declared unclean. Of course, many people have asked why some and not others. I mean, why the animal discrimination? Why did the poor rock badger get on the disapproved list? 
What did the bunny rabbit ever do? Many theories have been put forward for why some are declared clean and others not. Some say, well, clean animals are the ones that are better for you in the sense of dietary. But if that's so, why years later would Jesus have declared all foods to be clean? It doesn't seem that it's a matter of health. More likely, it had something to do with neighboring pagan religions. For example, boiling a young goat in its mother's milk, that was a ceremonial custom of the Canaanites. And so it was prohibited. But friends, the big point is this. God desires His people to be set apart and noticeably distinct from all of the other nations. That meant they would look different. They would live differently. They would even eat differently. So the dietary regulations were like a parable. They were a picture showing an internal reality. God isn't saying that these unclean animals were inherently evil. No, there's something in the Old Testament called ritual uncleanness. Ritual cleanness and uncleanness are not moral categories. For example, this morning I was reading in my quiet time Leviticus, where if you have a discharge, a bodily discharge, you are considered to be unclean, not in a moral sense, but ritually unclean. In other words, these whole dietary regulations were a parable showing that God's people are set apart from the surrounding nations. Just as God is holy, so His people must be holy. They even eat differently, distinct from the nations. Now, does this mean that we Christians here in Dubai should have our own special diet? Well, no, because we've already seen. We're not under the old covenant strictures. Now that Jesus Christ has come, God is calling people from all the nations to follow Him from all tribes and peoples and languages. These external barriers have all come down. God is concerned now not about ceremonial uncleanness, but about the inner purity of His people. After all, Jesus declared all foods clean. And didn't He say in Mark 7, nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. So the focus today is on the heart. Jesus said, for from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Food has nothing to do with it now. So Paul could write, food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Friends, it's a matter of Christian liberty and we should cherish it. Lobster is back on the menu. Give thanks for that. If you're a believer, you should give thanks that you have been set free from external regulations so that you can pursue God from the heart with all of who you are. Now, does that mean that you can do whatever you want? Does it mean you can eat whatever you want? Does it mean you can drink whatever you want? You may have Christian freedom. But you must use that freedom to build up your brother. If your brother is distressed, Paul says in Romans 14, if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. So beware how your liberty 
affects other people. Weaker brethren. Whether that's what you wear, or what you drink, or what TV shows you watch. Consider how your example is impacting others, especially those less mature than you. Also, friends, I must say, living in the UAE, we should be particularly mindful, especially at Ramadan, how our lifestyle communicates something to our Muslim friends. Think about that for a moment. You live in the, here in the Arab world. You're a follower of Christ, so you want to be a light wherever you are. So, are you living in such a way as to attract Muslims to Christ? Or to repel Muslims from Christ? Are there any areas of your life where your life is truly set apart? Wholly consecrated to God? Are there any parts of your life where you simply don't fit in to the prevailing culture? In how you speak? In how you use your money? In what you consume? You know, the Bible calls us aliens and strangers in this world. So, are you an alien and stranger? Or has worldliness begun to creep into your life? Perhaps even imperceptibly. A hundred years ago, Charles Spurgeon said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Friends, let's be a congregation that lives a life that is distinct, that is noticeably different. We're free in Christ to love others, and that includes financial generosity. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. This again was describing the annual pilgrimage to the place that God would choose for an offering, a tithe. A tithe means a tenth. It was given to the Lord, actually given to the Levites. And when the people went to Shiloh or when they all went to Jerusalem, there would be a joyous feast. And remember, these people at this point, by this point, would live all over the country, so it would entail a road trip. Verse 24. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. A portion of the tithe would be consumed then and there as they arrived at Jerusalem or wherever it was, and the rest would be given over to the Levites. That was a tribe dedicated to maintaining the holy things. 
and also support would be given to the orphan and the widow. Now, notice, as we draw this to a conclusion, I really want you to notice two things about these annual feasts. They, they stood out to me as interesting and extremely encouraging. Number one, these feasts were celebrated in the presence of the Lord. And number two, they were done so very joyously. Notice that in 14 verse 26. Verse 26, and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. That's so interesting because in the ancient Near East, people didn't do lunch the way we do for business associates or food courts. Eating and drinking for those people symbolized something deeper, a companionship. Uh, an alignment, a closeness. It was an act of intimacy to eat with someone. And yet, amazingly, we see here these people are eating before the Lord. And they were to rejoice with one another. Look back at chapter 12, verse 7. Chapter 12, verse 7. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice. Or look down at verse 12. 12 verse 12. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is in your town, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. And then look at verse 18. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. And then at the end of the verse, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Worship wasn't to be dull or drab or boring. It was all done in God's presence. And friends, it all pointed forward to an even more spectacular feast. The festivals of Israel approximated were only a dim shadow, a faint echo of a greater fellowship that Jesus Christ would bring. You know, Jesus spoke of a future day when people from the east and west and north and south will be reclining at table in the kingdom of God. Being with Christ will be so spectacular and wonderful that it can only be described in Scripture as some sort of celebratory feast, some kind of international banquet of joy that will have no end. It's eternal life in God's presence, freed from all sin, a restored relationship, in the unmediated presence of your maker just as we were created to be. Revelation 19.9 Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. If you are a follower of Jesus, be assured that there is a great feast and it awaits you. And all of the disappointment, all of the sadness of this life, the brokenness, the bereavement, the pain that we endure will give way to the glory of Christ when we see Him on the last day and behold His face. We who know Christ will be sitting there together in wondering astonishment, just as the hymn writer Isaac Watts put it, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room? 
when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. This is so timely for us here in Dubai. Modern Dubai, my friends, is kind of like Canaan circa 1500 BC. The very period of time when these people are about to enter in. I mean, we've got a Sikh temple here, we've got a Hindu temple there, we've got the mosque down the hill, and plenty of secularists in Dubai too. They're all enjoying brunch right now. In our pluralistic age, as we interact with people from all these different backgrounds, we must be clearer than ever about the non-negotiable truths of the gospel. And the reason is this. It does matter how we worship. And it does matter whom we worship. God cares how he's worshipped. The place. The focus. The people. He cares about all of it. Let's pray. Lord, since you care about all of who we are, since you care about all of what we do when we gather here on Sundays, and indeed when we worship you throughout the week, we desire that you would help us to understand true worship and to enter into it through the empowerment of the Spirit. And so we ask that you would awaken our affections, that you would correct our misjudgments and understandings, and that you would shape us by your word and for your glory. For Jesus' sake, amen.